Hey, welcome to the Riverbend Sunday Morning Teaching Podcast. If you've been with us, you know we just finished a three-week series on sexuality. Starting the Sunday after next, very exciting, we're going to begin a series that will shape the way that we do community or life together. And today is going to be a transition of both of those subjects. So we're glad you're with us. My name is Michael. I'm an old friend of Andrew's. We actually did Bible college together and worked for a little bit in Portland, Oregon at a church called West Side of Jesus Church. And I've been kind of in and around River Bend for years from the moment the church was started. My wife's family is from Bend, Oregon. About three or four years ago, we moved back to the area and I was helping pastor a church up in Redmond. And then very exciting, this past year, uh, we sort of transitioned from the Redmond Church into Riverbend. So it's exciting to be a part of Riverbend and to serve. As you can probably tell, this teaching podcast has changed. So as it happened on Sunday morning, uh, I delivered this message and then we found out the day after that we forgot to press record. So I'm in my studio at home with the microphone recording this time and my notes out. It's a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. I can look out the window and see the sun beaming off the mountains with a fresh dusting of snow on them. And I'm going to give you this teaching as it was on Sunday. Now, I should probably do a shout out to my wife, who is a brilliant business owner of Berlin Skin, a skincare line, because it affords me, when I'm not serving on Sunday, to be a professional house husband and to have time for things like this. That said, please excuse my four-year-old if and when he barges in here and interrupts us. <laughs> so we're going to get into it. Matthew Chapter 25, verse 34, it says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. A lot has been said here on Sunday about the cultural moment we live in, in particular the decline of healthy relationships. We've been caught in the tyranny of things like radical individualism, or where happiness is being pursued under the guise of freedom, or the desire to have full, undeniable access to anything we want, whenever we want it, and whoever we want, dehumanizing others as a commodity for our consumption which has created a tension, if not a war, between different groups of people. One author points out that, as a Christian, what is orthodox or common sense to us on these issues is considered hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. On top of that, we live in the age of a perceived connectivity from social media, online communities, dating apps, to global awareness and real-time news feed with interactive commenting from any and all sources, leading to an entire generation, Gen Z, whose primary and preferred mode of communication is not face-to-face, -face, but instead through their smart devices. Now, this is why maybe you've seen like a group of teenagers sitting around a picnic table all face down on their phones. But the irony is that they're texting each other. Now, you'd think the outcome of all this freedom of individuality and global connectivity would be lots of healthy friendships, fulfilling relationships with our family members and neighbors and coworkers, you know, kindness and tolerance, understanding, deeper love and appreciation for our differences. 
world peace, right? And, and you know, all the, all the chuggy things that are crocheted into our pillows at home, live, laugh, love. But instead, we're becoming more isolated than ever. And the byproduct of our isolation being loneliness. The stats are crazy. Rates of loneliness in the U.S. have doubled since the 1980s. 35% of Americans report that they are chronically lonely. Only 8% report having a conversation with a neighbor over the previous year. Now, a number of pathologists have stated that loneliness is a more common problem in the U.S. than heart disease or diabetes. It's the equivalent to 16 packs of cigarettes a day. Our society is at risk of losing any sense of real connection. Of course, you guys all remember what happened during the pandemic, which was proof of many things, not surprisingly that we, the human race, are the kind of people who, who crave relationship, connection, and togetherness, but we're just not any good at it. This inability to relate well to others is having a devastating effect on our society, noticeably in our teenagers who don't feel safe in most places or in certain conversations, now that words like truth have been weaponized. And there's this ever-looming possibility of being canceled for any misstep in dialogue over the sensitive issues. Gosh, don't we all feel that same pressure? And maybe you're listening to this podcast feeling lonely and disconnected yourself but you're not sure why. And maybe this is why. Are we the products of hyper-individualism? Are we the products of social media revolution? You know, what began with a big promise to make our connection stronger is failing to deliver. For me, this is all reminiscent of C.S. Lewis's depiction of hell in his short fiction, The Great Divorce, where hell is not fire, lava, devils, and pitchforks, but instead it's this expansive city where people can do whatever they want, whatever they think up, they can have it, they can build it, they can eat it, and so on. But to the surprise of the reader, it's not a utopia of laughing and dancing and joy and eating and drinking together. No, instead it's, it's a dark city. It's a rainy city. Most of the businesses and homes have been boarded up. And the city keeps expanding because people can't stand living next to each other. They're so angry, bitter, getting in fights, gossiping, demanding their own way, disillusioned and increasingly unsatisfied. I know it sounds a lot like Portland these days, but hang with me here. Hell is a place where people can't do life together and it's driven them mad. Lewis concludes that what makes all of these people alike is that they are true to themselves. Whew. He wrote all of that in 1943. I would say that's prophetic. So I want to frame this question in our Western context today, Bend, Oregon, 2023. I'd say we're a people who, who truly want togetherness. We want belonging and relationship. We want the ability to stay in relationship despite clear differences. We want diversity of thought and personality. We view community as a gift to help us think more clearly, but we just don't know how to get there. So, what is the way of Jesus that brings us together in right relationship? Where love is given and received, where we feel safe to grow in vulnerability, and there's a shared space for dialogue for healing, for salvation, for discipleship, and for flourishing. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you lead us as a church? 
Would you give us eyes to see the brokenness, the brokenness around us and others, but also the brokenness we carry ourselves? And would you give us a path, a way that is your kingdom? May we learn from Jesus and how to grow in and what you call righteousness, being in right relationship with others, with God, with creation, and with ourselves. So lead us during this podcast. I pray for those listening wherever they are, if they're driving somewhere right now, or just out and about, God, would you speak to them? Would you give them a vision for who you want them to be in the future? Amen. Okay, let's nerd out on the Bible for a quick minute. As many of you already know, learning to be a disciple under Jesus is, of course, hearing his teaching and obeying his teaching. But we can also learn a great deal from observing the life of Jesus, like what were his daily rhythms, who did he do life with, how did he spend his time, where did he go to you know, find rest, and, and like what influenced his decision-making, and so on. One thing that you've probably noticed already is that Jesus is always up for a free meal. Jesus does a lot of stuff at the table during a meal, eating and drinking. Now, statistically, we all spend around an hour to an hour and a half every day eating a meal. But notice, for Jesus, most of his teachings and his ministry revolved around this activity of food and drink. Here's some quick examples from the scriptures. Luke 10. We know he stays and eats with Martha and Mary. Luke 14, we studied this last week. He's invited by a Pharisee for a free meal. Luke 19, he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And of course, we all remember the story of how he miraculously fed the 5,000. That's from Luke 9. And again, the 4,000 from Mark 8. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding feast. I mean, can you imagine Jesus the sommelier is working at your local Safeway? It's amazing. The Last Supper, of course, Jesus has a meal with his closest friends, his disciples, before his death. And then, of course, my favorite of these examples is when we see resurrected Jesus on the beach inviting his disciples to come eat what I can only imagine was fish tacos. You gotta love Jesus. Man. More examples to come, but I counted 36 times that the Gospels record Jesus at the table. In the Gospel of Luke alone, it's like a motif that runs directly into the book of Acts. So nearly one out of every three chapters, that's like every other page in your Bible will involve some sort of meal or dialogue teaching about sharing a meal. In fact, this was such a primary aspect of Jesus's life that even Jesus's enemies, like the jealous religious leaders, used it as a critique to his legitimacy as Messiah. This comes from Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, this is Jesus speaking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus was not a glutton or a drunkard, that was a false accusation against him, but he he does affirm something about himself. Did you catch that? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. <laughs> now, I find it under no coincidence that after Jesus is enthroned in heaven, he still finds a way to invite himself over for a meal. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you, and you will eat with me. Author and speaker Hugh Halter, who wrote the book Happy Hour, Etiquette and Advice on Holy Merriment, calls this the sacrament of party. I love that. It's the sacrament of party. 
So as I see it, Jesus isn't just affirming that we need to eat to be happy, like say Ecclesiastes, eat, drink, be merry, for you don't know how many days you have on earth. That's true. But instead, Jesus is giving us more, both how to be in a healthy relationship with our closest family, friends, and neighbors, and also how to do the difficult relationships with strangers or when the friendship goes south or when the family member goes off the deep end or when the neighbor is a little sus. You follow me? Jesus makes space at the table for you. He makes space at the table for me. And he wants us to do the same for others. So we called this teaching space at the table. What we're talking about is a thing I've heard behind the scenes called table theology, which is a theology for all of us. So listen, this, this is not a teaching about food or drink or even how to be hospitable, although we'll, we'll talk about some of those things, but rather this is about how to create space to meet with others and to tend to our relationships, whatever the kind and whatever your cup of tea is. There's actually a proverb that says, it is better to eat a little where there is love than to eat a lot where there is hate. Make sense? Now, this idea of creating space comes right at the beginning of scripture. God spread out the heavens and the earth in order to create, well, create a lot of things, right? <laughs> but not the least of these, food and the opportunity to have right relationship with him and with others and with creation. It's actually who and what the Trinity is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, inviting us to be in a flourishing relationship that they have with one another. This reminds me, quick story here, uh, hopefully this doesn't get me in trouble, but just the other day we had Andrew, you know, the pastor of Riverbend, and his wife Grace and their kids over to our house for dinner. And as you might imagine, there's like a bit of an unspoken spiritual competition between Andrew and I regarding how we actually live our lives, you know, like offstage, behind the scenes, like how well do we do what we preach? Uh, so the meal is served and my four-year-old comes to the table, sits down, immediately grabs everybody's hands and says, let's pray. And then just starts belting out the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And he's really going for it. He finishes strong. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And it, like we were all singing with them. We, we kind of erupt into a, an applause at the end. Like, wow, that was amazing. Amazing. And so, not wanting to miss out on the opportunity, I look over at Andrew's son, Judah, who's like a little more soft-spoken, and I looked at him as serious as possible. I just said, okay, bud, your turn. What do you got? <laughs> and he, he looked at me with big eyes like, oh, no. It's okay. I told him I was joking, but it was a little awkward for the rest of the night. In fact, now that I think of it, I don't think uh, we've gotten together for dinner ever since then. Well, <laughs> you know, I guess I win. If it's a competition, I guess I win. Okay, back on track here. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, inviting us to be in their flourishing relationship with one another. God is inviting us to a meal with Him. Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And in turn, God is inviting us to extend that meal to others. 
Mark chapter 9, Jesus speaking, he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Now think with me. What happens when, say, you run into your neighbor and invite them in for a drink, or they invite you into their home for a drink? You know, how does that make you feel? Well, a few things probably. You'd feel seen, cared for, feel that you matter, that you're known, that you're important, that this person is willing to, to make time to be with you. You'd feel that, you know, you're, they're concerned for your well-being and happiness. They're, they're serving you something to eat or to drink at your preference. You know, all of that, all of those feelings often subconsciously gives us a sense of warmth or safety. This place is safe for a conversation. And so the first thing we learn from the life of Jesus is that the table is space that is safe. The table is space that is safe. And this could just be like the simple act of inviting someone in person to have a drink. You may not feel like you have much power to change our culture from that radical individualism that we talked about earlier, but you do have the power of influence with a specific group of people. A few neighbors, a few friends, a few co-workers, a few of the people sitting next to you. You can make them feel seen and loved. We've all done this. We've all had this done for us. MIT professor Sherry Turkle writes on the need for old-fashioned analog over digital conversation, saying, Face-to-face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen. It's where we develop the capacity for empathy. It's where we experience the joy of being heard and being understood. So it matters to meet up in person, face to face. You know, I think about, you know, what's the cost of that? You know, at what cost? What's the risk and reward? You know, maybe an hour of your time, maybe maybe $10, you know, $10, $10 now a day for a cup of coffee, you know. And this is the type of thing that can create an eternal relationship and eternal reward. I mean, the reward over risk is a bet worth taking. Now, my wife and I are not the most gifted in hospitality. Uh, We have some friends that have blown us away. You know, uh, one friend back from Portland invited us over, and when we entered the door, they greeted us with like a menu that had all these different drinks on it uh, that we could order from them, but all the drinks' names were customized uh, from our lives. Again, these were good friends, so it wasn't like super creepy or anything. Uh, But it was so endearing. You know, we just felt so good walking into their house. Anyways, we're not as awesome as they are. That's a nice hospitality trick that we stole and and we use it all the time. Um, But if you were to come over to our house today, you would know that I make the world's best cup of coffee. Well, in Terrebonne, that is. And this is self-proclaimed, of course. So there's not much competition. (laughs) But truly, it's the world's best cup of coffee in Terrebonne. Uh, but when I brew it, it's like a lengthy process because I'm a perfectionist and I nerd out on coffee. Uh, but I prefer it that way because it also creates a starting place for conversation, a conversation that unfolds slowly. You know, patience is involved. When we talk, we, we'll tend to each other's facial expressions, to our tone of voice and all the subtle nuance. The opportunity for relation, relationship, like how's your day going? You know, what, what are you working on? What's your plans for the weekend and so on? All of that happens in that space of time. Now, offering a drink and receiving a drink are 
are equally important. Jesus did a little of both. I love in John chapter four, there's this conversation that starts between him, Jesus, and this Samaritan woman at a literal watering hole, Jacob's well. And by the time they're done, if you recall the story, an eternal relationship with Jesus has begun. And it's all because of meeting over a drink. You know, she offers a drink to him, he offers a drink to her in a neutral space. An impromptu table is now set up between these two very unlikely characters, right? Culturally at odds with each other, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. However, they've created a safe place that will be shared then and now for eternity. So again, listen to me. This is about way more than just food or drink or hospitality. For Jesus, he ups the ante and he asks us not only to invite our friends or neighbors who might reject us, but to invite the marginalized, the overlooked, the poor and the sick to our table to make space for them. And that's why this is more than just creating a safe place. That's not enough. There's something better. There's something better. And that is the table is space for acceptance. The table is space for acceptance. Jesus was really good at this type of stuff. Whether it was eating with the outcast or the elite, Jesus drew people in close. He met them empty and left them full. He's able to get people from different ways of life, different beliefs to sit down at the same table and to know that they are accepted and that there is space at the table for them. Now, some of you are thinking, wait, isn't this what we do at Riverbend called Alpha? Yes, and I'm super glad you made that connection, Alpha, at the church. Um, But I got to ask you this, you know, is that easy? Is that easy sitting at a table next to somebody who you know has a differing opinion about everything culturally? And the answer is no, not really. So how do we do the same as Jesus here? Okay, take a deep breath. (laughs) This is key. Jesus understands the difference between acceptance and approval. One more time. Jesus understands the difference between acceptance and approval. And that doesn't come easy for us, does it? Many Christians don't even know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. Because remember, the language and the logic of post-Christian culture have changed almost overnight. The invitation to bring people who despise you into your home may sound like a horrific prospect, and I get it, especially when we're around people with different beliefs. But Jesus, Jesus does this thing in Mark 12. I love this. It says this, he saw that a man said something wise, and so he said to him, you are close to the kingdom of God. Jesus has this knack for what Paul in Romans 12 says is the ability to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. So he sees that in this guy and he says, you are close to God's kingdom. That's like the equivalent of today saying something like, hey, you're not wrong, right? Hey, you're not wrong. You know, my wife says Travis Kels is more popular now because of Taylor Swift. And my response is, hey, you're not wrong. You know, I don't need to fight her on this. It's something we agree on. I don't necessarily approve of T-Swift. I know that ostracizes me from a lot of you listening right now, but whatever. But you know, hey, you're not wrong. She made this guy more popular. There it is. Now, theologians call this common grace. 
It's the idea that we are all made in God's image and can share in His wisdom and blessings. Even those who are non-Christians can share in God's wisdom and blessings. So we approve of those things. So this this idea of you know Jesus going, hey, you're not far from the kingdom. This idea characterizes Christians who, and this is a quote from Rosaria Butterfield, Christians who don't fuss over different worldviews represented at the dinner table. Those who aren't embarrassed to keep friendships with people who are different. They don't buy the world's bunk about this. They know that there is a difference between acceptance and approval, and they courageously accept and respect people who think differently from them. Now, I've been quoting Rosaria a bunch throughout this teaching. Let me tell you a little bit about her story, how she came to writing the book, The Gospel Comes with House Keys. Rosaria wasn't a follower of Jesus at first. Actually, she was just the opposite, describing herself as an out lesbian feminist, a leader in LGBTQ rights, who is actively writing on various progressive liberal ideologies and vehemently criticizing and opposing Christians in their belief in the Bible. I know, she sounds like a tough cookie. So what changed? Well, in short, she got invited over to a pastor's house to have dinner, and this pastor just showed her kindness. It was one meal at first, but the first of many. In fact, two years worth of meals before Rosario ever felt comfortable stepping into a church and eventually deciding to surrender her life to Jesus and follow him. Crazy awesome story. You know, one of our modern day prophets and philosophers, Ted Lasso would say, She's a tough cookie, but you know what you do with tough cookies, don't you? Dip them in milk. So good. Love Ted Lasso. Now, I'm going to read to you straight from Rosario's book, and this is where she applied what she learned with a friend. She says this, Last year, an old friend came out to me as a lesbian. She called and said, I've been avoiding telling you this, but I like girls. I know that you don't approve. I was grateful that she called me. She's an old friend, a dear friend, and I loved her. So I asked her a simple question. Do you think I wouldn't understand? Her, no, I know you understand. It's that you don't approve. I can't take knowing that you don't approve of me. Me, did we always approve of each other? Her, no, no, we didn't. Me, we've disagreed on everything. Pixar films, chicken nuggets, spankings. We have never approved of each other, but we have always loved each other. True? Her. Very true. We've never approved. We've always loved. Me. So why are you changing the rules on me? She goes on to write, quote, My friend and I laughed and cried and argued just like we had done for the 10 years that we lived in the same community. It was important, though, to resist the idea that love and approval will go hand in hand. End quote. What a beautiful story. But there's a lot to chew on there. I mean, applying this to our lives is going to take a lot of discussion and wisdom and prayer, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit's direction. Am I right? Well, Rosario isn't done. Acceptance is different than approval. She then goes on to say, quote, But today is a different story. Today, to refuse to both accept and approve of those who identify as LGBTQ, etc., is to deny their rights to determine for themselves what personhood means. This brings us to the epicenter of the worldview divide. Whose image do we bear? The image of God or the reflection of our sexual autonomy? 
Unbelievers need to see genuine acceptance from us, genuine love, to see that being made in the image of God is a higher calling, bestowing a greater dignity than inventing your own rules for faith in life, end quote. So, creating a safe place and acceptance are needed, but we need something even better. We need something more. The table is space for reconciliation. The table is space for reconciliation. Now, we don't have time to look at every example, but in the book of Acts, we see that eating together was a distinguishing mark of the early church. They did it daily. And in particular, eating together was a command from God to the disciple Peter in order to bring about reconciliation with non-believers. That's from Acts 10. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul goes off on the church in Corinth for messing this up. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So the obvious conclusion for us, this table stuff is actually a big deal to the heart of God. And it's not just for networking, but for the coming together, the reconciliation between two differing tribes. Just the other day, we were eating a meal with my brother's family, his wife and kids, and me and Monica. It was a beautiful meal on their back deck, enjoying the sunset over the Deschutes River Rim. And my niece, uh, Hadley, who's about three or four at the time, uh, whom we call the honey badger for reasons that would take a little too long to explain. Well, let me, let me say it like this. As the conversation was dying down at the dinner, uh, Hadley's standing on her chair and stabbing her leftover meat with a fork. So <laughs> maybe just keep that image in the back of your mind. So, so my sister-in-law is deep into this discussion with us about a neighbor who she's butting heads with, just seems to be like a stick in the mud about some issue or another, you know, neighbor stuff. Um, and so they're trying everything they can to, to see eye to eye with this, this problematic neighbor. And, um, you know, we're trying to give her ideas like, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried this? You know, maybe this will help your relationship with them. Um, and the conversation drug on for a little bit. And at a certain point, Alyssa, I remember she just throws up her hands and she's like, I, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to kill him with kindness. Now, at this point, the badger raises her head slowly and squinting with curiosity asks, mom, what did you just say? You know, kill them with what? We got her attention. And uh, Alyssa, in her nurture, nurturing motherly instincts, begins to explain, Oh, honey, yeah, it's just an expression. You know, when, when you don't get along with somebody, instead of choosing to hate them or be mean to them, like you instead be over-the-top kind, loving, be overly gracious and giving, in hopes that like one day you'll, you'll win them over and, and they'll begin to trust you and, and maybe won't consider you an enemy anymore. And, and maybe you'll become friends. Does that make sense? And we all look over to Hadley. She looks up and she just says, and then you kill him. <laughs> and she even said it like that with this kind of like crazy redneck sort of drawl, you know, like the whole sentence was just one word, then you kill him. <laughs> oh, pretty funny. Uh, she's not from Lapine or anything, so <laughs> it's not what you'd think, but um, yeah, Kill him with kindness, then you kill him. Now, that's not what Jesus meant. No way. But this expression has its roots from the Bible. Now, notice in this passage from Romans 12, notice the table theology. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
What's difficult is that reconciliation actually takes time. It takes patience and prayer. It takes humility. And there's probably going to be some crying, maybe even someone losing their temper and walking out the door. At the very least, it'll take long conversations where you'll probably put your foot in your mouth a few times. For Jesus, reconciliation with us took literal blood, sweat, and tears. It's sad, but I've noticed that Christians can often think that there's like a quick fix or a life hack to relationships. You know, oh, I'll just send my gay friend this book that I read on sexuality. Or I'll just tag some video or, or tweet some, you know, quote from the Bible. Or, or worse, you know, I'll just send him a link to one of Andrew's Riverbend podcasts on sexuality. That'll fix the problem. You know, it's like, whoa, those are great teachings, by the way, but I think you get the point. Now, it's going to take a lot more than that as we dip into these relationships that we have that are problematic. Uh, my favorite professor, Brad Harper from Multnomah, is a guy who specializes in relational theology of the Trinity. He always said this. I remember him in class always saying, life is about relationships. Life is about relationships. And he's right. He's right. In fact, the longest ongoing study in the world at Harvard concludes the same. The happiest people in life are those who spend it on their relationships. Now, Brad, my professor, he knows this because he's an Orthodox Christian professor. Uh, this entire teaching is, is also loosely based off a book he wrote with his gay son called Space at the Table. That's right. You heard me correctly. The book is a conversation between Brad, an evangelical conservative theologian, and Drew, his agnostic gay son. Yeah, heavy. You probably didn't see that coming, did you? Now, I got to tell you about their story. The journey they embarked on for years, Brad likens to, quote, walking through a beautiful, happy meadow of father and son closeness, which filled over time with landmines of conflict over sexuality and morality, a conflict seemingly irresolvable. But then Brad goes on to say, but their story is also of how their relationship survived that conflict, even flourished, though not without some scars to show for it, end quote. He would add this as it relates to reconciliation, quote, love does not start with condemnation. True love is possible when we are honest about who we are, to move toward each other, not by going around our conflicting worldviews, but going through them, end quote. Jesus is no stranger to the scars of reconciliation, the pain and suffering it takes to eventually sit down again at the table. Now, we don't have time, but if you were to look at the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, through this lens of table theology, you'd see that it was a broken relationship that is then restored at a table feast, at a banquet. Or perhaps even more clear, Jesus' relationship with Peter, his closest friend and disciple, who denied Jesus and ran away, is then made right again with him at the beach, at the campfire, eating fish tacos. Table theology is creating space to be with one another. Creating space to be with one another as Jesus has done for us. It's a safe place. It's a place for vulnerability. It's a place where you are accepted by kindness. And it's a space where there's opportunity for reconciliation. So what do we do with all of this? 
You know, it's been my prayer leading up to this teaching and afterwards that as you're hearing about the life of Jesus and how he created space at the table, that the Spirit was already putting into your mind somebody who, you know, right now or in the next few days, you could text or call and just say, hey, we need to meet up for coffee or let's go grab lunch together. You know, for me, this is primarily about a broken relationship with my dad. And you'd be surprised how much tension there is between, you know, what I say is two rich white male evangelicals. Um, but there is, there's a lot of scars, there's a lot of wounds that we're still working towards healing. You know, there's a time where the table was not a safe place, where I, I wanted to jump across the table and punch him in the face or something, you know. Um, and so it's for me, it's making time. It's making space at the table to repair and to restore my relationship with my dad. And again, that just looks like the phone call. Hey, dad, you know, I'm going to be in Portland. Um, it's your birthday. Let's go get lunch. Let's go get brunch somewhere. You know, uh, we did this three weeks ago and just met up on the east side, Portland, screen door, you know, chicken waffles. It was amazing. And, and it's hard. You know, there are unexpected events even in that, in that brunch together. Uh, and there's a long way to go still for him and for I, but I have so much hope in our relationship and I see how God and the Holy Spirit is using all of these all these table conversations to work us back towards healing. You know, something that breaks my heart that I keep hearing about so often is the amount of uh, family relationships that were torn apart during the pandemic, during COVID. And, you know, a lot of it was over political things or, you know, to wear a mask or not to wear a mask and, and vaccines and all the things that just ripped families apart. And I'm hoping that some of you, this path of just, hey, let's just, let's just get a coffee and talk, you know, is a way back towards healing with some of your family members. I pray, and again, that's gonna take the Spirit's work um, to heal and to restore there. Um, and then lastly, just super practically, you know, we're gonna get we're gonna get into a whole series on community groups and and what that's gonna look like for Riverbend as a church moving forward. And so there's there's gonna be a very practical call, like, will you open up your home? You know, will you provide a meal for others in your house? Um, there's gonna be a call for us to step into that sort of thing. And so you have that. I, my wife and I. <laughs> We, uh, this was kind of dropped on us last year, but uh, Young Life asked us to be a host and to lead campaigners, which is for some of these uh, younger high school teenager kids who have decided to follow Jesus. And so every Monday night we had a group of, of you know, 12 super awkward teenage, I, well, at least two of them were normal, but, you know, a bunch of teenagers in our house doing life together across the table. And I could share, I could go on and share countless amazing stories of what, God did on those Monday nights. Uh, it turned into the best night of the week, not just for us, but for the teenagers, for the kids as well. So those are just a few ways I think that we can respond. Um, you know, thinking again, back to the broken relationships, you know, what I have with my dad, you know, some of you are, are not getting responses. You're texting a friend or family member and they've blocked you out and they don't return phone calls. And there's just, yeah, they've ostracized you. And I wanna give you hope. There's a lot of stories where this is the case where there's silence for decades with somebody who was close to you. But I wanna give you hope because the table is one more thing. It's, it's preparation for a future meal. It's preparation for that banquet in heaven. 
and it is the centerpiece of where everything is headed. So there are actually 76 verses specifically involving tables in the scriptures. What matters most is the depiction of the table as the new covenant, an invitation to be with and follow Jesus. And this eternal banquet motif that has, as we know, been drawn out from Genesis to Revelation, it continues. Matthew 25, what we read at the beginning, Jesus speaking, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. But then verse 37, then the righteous, remember the righteous being those who are in right relationship with God, others and creation and themselves, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? And the king, King Jesus will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In that book I referenced at the beginning, The Great Divorce, if hell is expanding towards separation, isolation and madness, then heaven is moving closer to one another as the eternal family. And there's joy, unbridled joy. C.S. Lewis depicts heaven as a place where you cannot enter with any amount of bitterness, envy, gossip, revenge, resentment, jealousy, ego, or unforgiveness. And why? It's because heaven is too full of joy, unrelenting joy. When we accept the invitation to Jesus' table, when we surrender to him as Lord, we receive grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and it forever changes how we interact with others. There's joy. There's space at the table for God, for us. There's space at the table for you. There's space at the table for me, for my dad, for Rosaria, for Brad and his son. And there's joy at the table. Let's go and make space for others.